We'll be reading in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together in him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thanks, Tracy, for reading. Um, we got some work to do, right? We all heard the same passage read out loud. A little bit of work to do in there. So let's pray, and we'll get right down to it. Father, we pray as uh, Jesus taught us to, um, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done here in Okinawa and in this room and in our own hearts. Uh, your will, not our own. Your kingdom, not our own. Uh, competing kingdoms, uh, your kingdom and your will be done. Father, we pray that you'd give us today the bread that we need for our souls. Help us to see ourselves as hungry kids who are here to get something from a good and generous giving Father. Uh, Father, we confess too often we view church as this thing we do to go give something to you. Uh, when in reality, all along, we're the ones who need to receive. You're the one who has something to give, and we desperately need what you have. So thank you that you delight in giving us good gifts through your word. May it be nourishment uh, for our souls this morning. Father, I pray that you would lead us to forgive others in the same generous way that you have forgiven us, rather than harboring bitterness or resentment, that grace and mercy and forgiveness would flow just as freely from us as it has from you toward us. Father, you know our, as your kids, our, quick, our feet are quick to run away from you, uh, to seek satisfaction or meaning or identity in other places. So we pray that you would uh, deliver us from evil and lead us away from temptation. 
Father, remind us this morning that it's your kingdom, your power, and your glory so that we can be set free from the tendency to live for our, to build our own kingdoms. We can be set free from our tendency to live in our own strength, our own power, and that we can be set free from the ugly tendency to live for our own fame at the cost of other people. So, Father, your kingdom, your power, uh, your glory, your fame. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get down to work. We continue in our gospel anticipation uh, series this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I would like to open us up with a question, a series of questions, if you will. And even if you're not a note taker, I want to encourage you to get out a piece of paper or your, your pen and iPad and jot down brief answers to these. If you're sketching, uh, do what I did in my own notes this week in my journal. Uh, I can't, I don't draw well, but I can draw stick figures. So I got a stick figure me in there. I've got some arrows around me. I've got some arrows toward me. And then I've got some arrows coming from within me, right? Representative of, of the answers to these questions. And here it is. What expressions of evil crush me? Um, what expressions of evil are just absolutely demoralizing, disheartening, enslaving, destructive, um, almost inescapable, sobering, saddening, sorrowful, angering? What expressions of evil crush me? And there are three important ways I think we need to ask that question. The first is because we live in a broken world, uh, what expressions of evil around me just crush my soul? What do I see that wrecks me in the world around me? Maybe an expression of injustice, uh, inequity, suffering. What expression around me? And this is where it gets a little more personal probably. Uh, because we live in a broken world, uh, every one of us have experienced expressions of evil directed toward us, and so we have been wounded by others, and there are expressions of evil directed toward us that have just absolutely crushed us, wrecked us, and we carry those wounds and those scars to this day. And then a third very important, very gospel-informed category as we seek to tell the truth about ourselves, tell the truth about ourselves, what expression of evil within me crushes me, or maybe we, maybe we should change it this way to say what expression of evil within me has crushed another person. In those moments of life where I have moved away from God's kind kingly rule and sought to be my own king or to live for my, myself and I have used other people for my own gain or for my own pleasure, what expression of evil from within me has crushed another person and now maybe crushes me as I think about what I have done to wound somebody so deeply? What expressions of evil crush me? Last week, Vince led us uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to anticipate God's justice. Beautiful, beautiful reminder that God cares about justice more than we do. He sees all of the injustice in this world. And when he returns, not only will he eradicate all injustice forever, his kingdom is perfect, he will judge every expression of injustice. So that's a hopeful word, 
but it's also a sobering word because all of us have expressed injustice in some way or another towards God and towards others. So uh, we all need rescue from that coming judgment, which we receive in Jesus. But it's a beautiful reminder that God cares about justice more than we do. He's coming to eradicate injustice and to establish justice. And this morning, I want to encourage you to see in our text that we are called to anticipate not only God's justice, but God's power over evil. We're here this morning to anticipate God's power over evil. And um, as, we, as we move along in the text, I want to show you, if you could just skip a slide or two, please, to, um, I want to show you the movement that, in, that happens in this chapter, and I want you to be able to see it as an invitation. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse, um, verse 2 says, not to be quickly shaken in mind, or what? See that word right there? Alarmed. So what's our kind of our opening word? Yeah, I'm going to let you wake up for a minute. What's our opening word? All right. Act like you're alarmed or something. Alarm, fear, anxiety. So, so the discussion in chapter 2 opens with people who have alarm. They have deep-seated fear. And I want, you to show, I want to show you how the movement of this passage uh, concludes. It begins with alarm, anxiety, fear, and it concludes with this word in verse 17. The first word of verse 17 which simply, is, simply is this, comfort. And so our passage begins with anxiety and moves to verse 17 uh, at the end of the chapter. Uh, if you can put that up on the screen, it, en- it ends with the word comfort. And so maybe as you consider the questions that we began with, uh, those crushing realities of evil that strike fear into your heart, this passage is an invitation from a good father to listen to his voice and allow our souls collectively this morning, individually, to be moved from fear to comfort, from anxiety to anticipation in Jesus. When I was a kid, I remember uh, second born, so I went to bed way, like hours, probably like 10 hours before my older brother. He stayed up, like ate ice cream and watched MacGyver with my mom. And I'm like, I'm in bed for like 10 hours before I even fall asleep. And, uh, and there I was, and I'm all alone in this big room, old farmhouse in Vermont. And I don't know if you had this experience, but I, I remember this like it was yesterday. It still, it still kind of happens sometimes, and it always brings me back to my childhood. Like if my eyes were closed and my ears are kind of on the pillow up against the bed, um, you can hear your own heartbeat, right? And physically kind of, fe- you feel it and you hear, you hear it. And as a kid, I remember thinking that sound, that I didn't know where it was coming from. I'm like, what's this internal sound? What is that? I don't know, it was like my own heart, my own blood moving through my body. Um, I thought they were like giants or monsters coming down the dead end road that we lived on uh, in Vermont. And I thought they were... The, no- the noise was getting louder, so I just thought naturally, well, these giants or monsters are moving closer to me and closer to my bedroom, and they're going to destroy me. Anybody else? Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for leaving me out there. My psychologist said if I asked that this morning, other people would say, yeah, I've had the same experience. He lied. Wow, guys, you can't leave me hanging out there like that. All I was trying to do was... Uh, give you a a working metaphor to bring to life the answer to these questions. I think there are very many expressions of evil in our life around us, toward us, and within us that when we close our eyes, 
in the quiet moments, it is what we hear and it's what we see. They dominate our thoughts and they are almost impossible to stop thinking about. And they strike anxiety deep within our souls. And this morning, our Father invites us to move from anxiety to a place of comfort as we see God's power over evil. So that's the invitation that we have this morning. Uh, these are a suffering people. I want you to see that in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, uh, on the screen for you. It says this, we don't want anybody to be moved by what? Affliction. So if you were here for the series through 1 Thessalonians, you know the word afflictions was a key word. This was a, a small church family that was, their lives were characterized by affliction. Straight up. They were an afflicted group of people. That theme carries over into the second letter, different word, but we see this in chapter one, verse three. We saw it last week. It says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered uh, worthy of the kingdom of God for which you what? All right, S afflicted and suffering. Maybe for some of you this morning, those are appropriate words for what you have known in this season of Okinawa. And so as I thought about this young church, in a city where they were experiencing affliction and suffering, the one verse all week that was inescapable for me that I kept coming back to is in Psalm 23, verse 4, uh, very familiar to you. It goes like this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Guys, their affliction and their suffering was so acute and so overwhelming and so personal I am sh they had the Psalms. I'm sure when they were done and they filtered out past Booby's tattoo, they're like, you know, we should really get that tatted on this week. Like, this is, this is us. We are walking. They probably read that and said, walking? We straight up live in the valley of the sh We stopped walking a long time ago. We're being destroyed in the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe some of you this morning feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And the only reminder you need this morning is that in the evil around you, the evil expressed towards you, and the evil within you, there is a good God who is present with you, who alone has power over that evil. And the freeing beauty of the gospel is this, the reminder that you and I do not have that power over the evil. The God who is present, though, with us in the valley is the one who has the power over evil. So that leads to our big idea from the passage this morning. It simply goes like this. In the valley of the shadow of death, I will be anxious. That's our default, and that's why I wrote it that way. That's, that's where we all tend. In the valley, I will be anxious about my suffering, like they were, about my insufficiency. We'll see that idea in the passage this morning, about my suffering and my insufficiency in the valley. Or... Here's the invitation from the passage this morning. I will move from a place of anxiety over my suffering and my insufficiency to a place of anticipation in Jesus who is sovereign over me and in the valley with me, sovereign over the evil, powerful over it. Not only sovereign, he's sufficient for me in all of my insufficiency. That's the beauty of the gospel. You don't have to be sufficient. And that's good news because none of us are self-sufficient. Jesus is sufficient for me. All right, so that's our big idea. And here's my outline for the morning. In the spirit of my, uh, my first ASVAB waiver years ago, I like to keep it simple. So here's my simple outline. There you go. You don't even have to write, write it down. It's the big idea. 
Number one, just circle number one next to anxious. Anxious about my sufferings and insufficiency. And two, anticipate Jesus who is sovereign and sufficient for me. So let's hit this idea of anxiety first. I want to show you where it's at in the text and show you why these Christians were, were fearful. It goes like this, chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Why? Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody wrote a letter and attributed it to Paul and in that letter or in the word that they were sharing, whatever was going on, they were letting these young Christians know, hey, uh, Jesus already returned the day of the Lord and you missed it. Like you missed it. You missed out. So uh, I know everybody's freaking out about chat GPT right now, but look, it's, all, it's always been going on. Somebody, look at, they write a letter. They're like, hey, uh, I need a letter. Make it sound like it's from Paul. Uh, all the day of the Lord imagery, uh, make it say, make Paul say that Jesus has already come back and you missed it. And he sends them, they, they, they send him this fake letter. Now, why would that be alarming to them? Like, look at these words. It says quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Those two words are words that would be used to describe like a person's experience through an incredible storm or an earthquake where they are deeply unsettled. Uh, their feet are, uh, they can't even stand, um, they can't even stand with any kind of certainty. They're just completely unsettled, afraid, anxious, fearful. So if these Christians heard that Jesus had already returned, what would cause them to be anxious or fearful about that? What do you think? I think two things. One, if we think back to our time in 1 Thessalonians, what did Paul say Jesus would accomplish when he returned? A lot of things, but he said this very specifically. Jesus is returning to rescue you from the wrath that is to come. There's this future wrath and Jesus is returning to save you from it. So now, take a group of people who are suffering already and afflicted already and give them a letter that's allegedly from Paul, the guy who know, like, has been teaching them all of this all along, which says, uh, sorry, you missed it. They're about to go from really bad to even worse. Their suffering will get worse. Their affliction will get worse. Of course, they're afraid. The uncertainty of what will come. We can relate to that. The suffering that we face, the affliction that we face, and the uncertainty of what that suffering and affliction will look like tomorrow. But I think it's more than just suffering. I think it's insufficiency, and I think we can relate to this. Because what's the other big idea related to Jesus' return for his family? Not only that he will rescue us from the wrath to come, but what? He will gather us together like we're his family members, forgiven, loved, kept. He will per he's personally coming to get us. He's going to gather us together, and what's he going to do? He's going to bring us all the way home to the Father. So this, if this is what you've been taught as a Christian all along, and then you get a letter that says, hey, he's already come back, and man, I, I, I guess you missed. I guess you missed it. What would that communicate to you about your relationship with Jesus? Well, I guess it wasn't really real. I mean, he came back, and he didn't come for me. So not only is suffering a real thing, now my insufficiency I wasn't good enough for God's family. 
Um, we are not them. We're not in this city and we're not in this time. And we have not received a fake letter attributed to Paul. But have we not wrestled with that same fear of insufficiency? I wonder if my faith is really genuine. I wonder if I'm really part of God's family. I wonder if he sees me. I wonder if, I wonder if when he comes back, he's actually coming back for me to rescue me. I wonder, I wonder if I'm actually forgiven. Man, look at me. I love him so weakly. My faith is so weak. Um, man, I've made so many horrible decisions. He's probably let me go. There's no way he's coming back for me. So I think their minds and their hearts are flooded with fear of more suffering and worse suffering, but also incredible insufficiency. Some of you in this room are consumed with suffering and affliction right now. And many of us in this room daily struggle with thoughts of insufficiency as it relates to our place in God's family. And so if that is you, the good news of the gospel, just like it's good news for me this morning, is what was our opening pattern? What, what does this chapter begin with? Alarm, anxiety, and how does it conclude? Comfort. So the good news is your father is not here to crush you with a shame-filled word. How dare you be so self-focused about your suffering and your affliction? If you were a good Christian, you wouldn't be worried about that at all. How dare you be consumed again with thoughts of insufficiency? Don't you believe I love you? Rather, he comes with a gentle word and an invitation to move from anxiety to comfort. So first, Paul, what he's going to do is he's going he's to dispel their fear by saying, hey, look, uh, there's no way Jesus came back already. The letter's fake. I didn't write it. I didn't send it. It's AI. It's chat GBT. It's not me. Uh, let me show you why Jesus could not have come back yet. Like there are certain things that need to happen first. We've actually talked about them. He, he had talked. We'll see that. They had talked about them. Uh, so there's no way that it's happened. But guys, here's what I want you to see. Paul is not trying to restore their confidence by giving them a crystal clear timeline that they can map out and chart out and like figure out end time stuff. He is dispelling their fear initially to be like, hey, Jesus couldn't have come back yet because X, Y, Z. But then what he's going to do in the middle of this winding conversation, he wants to anchor our confidence in Jesus alone uh, to show us that um, even if you were fearful, even if the suffering and affliction increased, even in your doubts about insufficiency, your hope is not in a timeline of end times events. Your hope is in a Jesus who is present with you, who has power over all of these evil things. Let me show you. Let me show you the, the flow of this. Paul does what Paul does, right? A winding conversation about something with which, over which he's very passionate. But here it is, verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come. That's just his way of saying, hey, relax. You didn't miss Jesus' return. The day won't come unless something called the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. This man of lawlessness is also known as the son of destruction. So uh, Paul's saying, look, Jesus couldn't have come back. Two things have to happen before he does, and here they are. We've got to have this thing called the rebellion. Now, um, we don't know exactly what that rebellion is. The rebellion, the word in the Greek, is the word we get for apostasy. Apostasy sim simply means there are a bunch of people or a person that have a stated belief in the truth, and they deviate or wander away or fall away. They let it go. They, they move away from that belief. 
Um, so that would lead many people to believe that there is an apostasy that's still future where many people who call themselves Christians and gather with the church will walk away from the truth of, of the gospel and embrace, um, embrace a gospel substitute and turn away from Jesus. So that's possible. But um, it's also true that this word culturally uh, apostasy, it was used to talk about political rebellions, military rebellions, any kind of uh, falling away. So Paul's not writing to give us a whole bunch of clues so we can nail all of this stuff down. What exactly is the rebellion? Who rebels? Uh, it's a conversation that he's had with them already. And the little glimpse that we get into the conversation is enough to say, all right, uh, Jesus has not returned yet. There's this rebellion that's still future. And also, there's going to be a revealing of somebody who is called the man of lawlessness, uh, the son of destruction. The man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. And Paul said he's, he's not here yet. Now again, Paul's not giving enough clues for us to try to figure out who the man of lawlessness is, to name them. Uh, who the son of destruction is. He's, he's giving us a glimpse into his character and what he is going to do. Uh, some of us, maybe you can relate to this, you grew up in circles of Christianity where we confidently asserted past historical figures were this person. So the man of lawlessness, it would be safe to say, is the same figure that John would refer to as the Antichrist. And so we would look back at history and be like, well, this person, that person, Hitler, you know, on and on and on. Or even worse, growing up, I remember in the 90s, like this was kind of how my circles would operate, like politically. Like our, there would be a favorite politician among our church family. And so clearly that that person's opponent or their platform, like, well, they're the Antichrist. Like, you can't be a real Christian and vote for X, right? You gotta. So uh, Christians historically have done, uh, taken this to all kinds of uh, unhealthy places. And Paul's not working to give us so accurate a description that we can hang this title on uh, somebody um, that we disagree with or don't like. But I want to show you what he says he's going to do. And this nickname here really matters, the son of destruction. Whoever this person is, has that name for two reasons. First of all, this person is going to destroy a lot of people. And secondly, the fate of this person, as we will see in this passage, is a fate of destruction. Let's look in verse four. The son of destruction opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So this son of lawlessness, this son or the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, it's not just that they're opposed to the one true God, that they're opposed to Jesus. This, son of law, this uh, man of lawlessness is opposed to any religious expression, any devotion, any worship by any human not directed at, uh, at, at himself. So he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And in so doing, he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So there's another piece of the passage that we're not entirely sure. Uh, we don't exactly know what it means, where it says he will take his seat in the temple of God. Well, so the, the, for, the, for the Jewish people, their temple, uh, like now it's destroyed. So if this man of lawlessness would... Uh, take his seat in the temple, it would need to be rebuilt, which some Christians take it that way. There's going to be a future rebuilding of the temple. Man of lawlessness is going to sit himself there. Some people look at history and say, well, there have been people who have been very anti-Christ, who have desecrated God's temple. Maybe it's been historically fulfilled. 
Um, I understand it this way. I would view temple uh, metaphorically or representative symbolically for the people of God. So if the man of lawlessness is going to oppose God and anyone who worships God, to take a seat in his temple uh, would be another way of saying that this person is going to take a seat of authority or a position of authority right in the middle of God's people, right, right there uh, in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. We see in verse 6, hey, you know what is restraining him now? He's not here yet. He's being restrained. There is a what restraining him. He's going to be revealed in his time, but now is not his time. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So someone is restraining the man of lawlessness through something uh, so that he, the, so that he uh, cannot have been revealed yet. Paul doesn't tell us who is restraining him or what is restraining him. But he does say in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We know that, don't we? The mystery of lawlessness. Now, when the New Testament uses that word mystery, it's not to suggest to you, um, here's this mysterious thing that you've got to figure out. It's to say, uh, there's something that was previously unknown that has been made clear for us through God's revelation. So this mystery of lawlessness, um, which will come to a high point or a pinnacle when the man of lawlessness is revealed, even though the man of lawlessness is already being, is, is, is being restrained, this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. As we know that, the mystery of lawlessness has been at work in our lives over time. I mean, think about... To be lawless, to be lawless is, is to have a life or a heart that rejects God and rejects God's law. And we know from the New Testament, God's law is fulfilled through the love of God and the love of people. So any moment in my life where I have not been loving God first and most and have not been loving people second, in other words, I've elevated myself above other people, or I've displaced God, and I have attempted to rule my own life as though God does not exist, that's lawlessness. All the thoughts I think that I would be ashamed to have expressed out loud, all those feelings in my heart that none of you in this room know that I have, all of the dark places in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, all the darkness in our world. It says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the, uh, I told you, Paul was just going to keep winding and winding as he unpacks this man of lawlessness. And there's a little parody here. This is, this is interesting. Uh, he says the coming of the lawless one. So the lawless one has an arrival or a coming. Who else had a coming or an arrival? Jesus. Now I want to show you the parody here. Look at this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Uh, Jesus had a, had a coming. Whose activity was it by? God the Father sends God the Holy uh, God sends God the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Satan sends the lawless one, and how does he send him? With all power and what? False signs and wonders. How was Jesus sent? With all power, with all signs, and all wonder. S Jesus was sent with all power and signs and wonders. Why? 
to point us to the beauty of the Father, uh, to point us to the truth. Uh, Satan sends the lawless one with all power and false signs and wonders. Why? With deception for those who are perishing. So Jesus comes with deliverance for those of us who are perishing. The lawless one comes with deception for those who are perishing. And why are they perishing? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may condemned who all may be condemned who what did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness that's a sobering word what was the source of the condemnation for those who were perishing right there and how he describes them how does he finish up right there what's he say in order that all may be condemned, condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let me ask you a question. Are you like me in that you have ever taken pleasure in unrighteousness? Unrighteousness would be, um, unrighteousness would be any desire action which is out of step or out from underneath God's kind kingly rule over my life. I displace God. I attempt self-rule. I desire and run after the very things that God would say uh, would destroy me. And there is uh, a condemnation for those of us who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the man of lawlessness will come and bring more deception. And as a part of the judgment, verse 11 says, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. God allows them to have, allows us to have what our hearts desired. He says right there, for those who desired to live a godless life, for those who desired to live a self-rule, for those who desire to seek pleasure apart from my kind kingly rule, you want a godless existence? You get a godless existence. The sobering reality of the deception of our rebellion apart from Jesus is we believe that the pleasure of unrighteousness is a source of life for us. And the longer we receive our pleasure from unrighteousness, the more the deception is drilled down into our hearts. And what we come to see is that uh, at the end of the day, what I thought was pleasure is, is nothing more than a, a chalice. Uh, it, it is a poison cup. There is no pleasure in unrighteousness, only condemnation. And so as Paul unpacks all of this to show them that uh, this man of lawlessness who is the son of destruction has not yet come, um, we could do a couple of things with this passage if we weren't careful. And I think our greatest tendency is to focus in on some areas which are not clear and kind of major on the minors. And let me show you what that looked like for me growing up. It looked, it looked like this, right here on this chart. We take a passage like this and we, 
we uh, man of lawlessness and temple and um, and all of the things, and we think to ourselves, okay, let's make a chart um, so that we can increase our confidence and clarity about um, about the coming of Jesus and the return. And if our chart nails it, we won't miss it, and we don't have to worry. That would not be a helpful approach to this passage. Paul doesn't want us to make a chart. He wants us to chart a course for our lives, and he wants us to anchor it in the person of Christ. Let me show you what he does here in verse 8. This is where our confidence should be anchored. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So when he's no longer being restrained, when he's on the scene and he's destroying people, when he's revealed, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul doesn't want us to read this chapter and walk away thinking, oh, great, we can build a timeline and we can chart the future and that's our confidence. Paul wants us to walk away from this chapter being assured that we will not miss the return of Christ. Everything he describes there is global and obvious. Nobody will miss it. He wants us to walk away from this chapter with a confidence that is deeply anchored in Christ, a Christ who is going to descend from heaven and with the word of his mouth, kill the man of lawlessness. And then what does it say? Bring to nothing. Bring to nothing. That's our confidence in the valley. Jesus will descend into the valley. He will kill the man of lawlessness. Think about the power of the word of his mouth. What did Jesus, we think about all the way back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And what did he do to create? Let there be light. God's, God speaks and there is life. And God's voice is so powerful that he comes in judgment and speaks a word and the man of lawlessness dies. But what dies with him? What is undone? Look at this. This is our hope right here in verse 8. Jesus brings to nothing this man and all of his work. Why is that good news? Let's go back to our original question. What expression of evil crushes me? What expression of evil around me? What expression of evil expressed toward me? What expression of evil that has come from within me towards other people? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus in his return will not only kill the man of lawlessness, he will undo all that that evil has done. Jesus has power over all evil. Why is that very good news for us on a personal level? Well, expressions of evil have absolutely wrecked our souls, and we have no ability in and of ourselves to bring the restoration that we need. Who will undo the, the, what evil has done? Jesus will. And here's why that word gets even better. Here's where we just need to sit with that honestly. What if we wrote down names in answer to the question, who have I crushed with my own evil? And then what if we asked the, the follow-on question, what can I do to restore the people that I have wounded? Apart from confessing my sin and offering a sincere, heartfelt apology, can I actually do anything to restore the soul of a person I have wounded? I need Jesus 
to return and not only restore my soul in the valley, but restore the souls of people in the valley that I'm responsible for wounding. And that's the good news in Jesus' return. Paul encourages us to anchor our confidence in a Jesus who is powerful over all evil, not just the evil expressed towards us, but fam, the evil expressed from my heart to other people. And so um, Paul then invites us to move towards anticipation in this Jesus. So let's consider anticipation as we close. And let's do that by looking at Psalm 23, verse 4 again. Psalm 23, verse 4 goes like this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But actually, hey, who grew up King James? How does it actually start? Yeah, I never understood that. I never understood that. Like, yay! Though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Like, what are we celebrating for? I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. I didn't realize it wasn't a celebratory word, but um, yay, though I walk. Even's much better. That's a real upgrade. (laughs) Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Because this this matters, and this is where Paul takes us. Why? He's with me. So let's leave this on the screen for a moment. Do, Do we get rid of our fear because there isn't actually a valley? No, there's a valley. There's a valley. And there are two unhealthy tendencies in Christianity. Some of our Christian expression has been like, there's no valley. It's all a matter of perspective. What's, what's wrong with you? Just change the way you think. It's all good. That's one, that's one tendency. That's not helpful. What's the other, val- the, other, the other tendency? All we do is focus on the valley. And it's a sky is falling kind of approach to mentality. And we're paralyzed by fear. Paul... And the psalmist, they don't want us to focus on the valley. And then he says, even though I walk through the valley. So sometimes we focus on the valley. Sometimes we focus on I, I walk. Um, but there's an un- it's all about faith. And there's an unhealthy tendency there too, because you're like, you, you walk through the valley. I, I, I run through the valley. Like I run, you, my faith, in fact, if you have so much, you fly, you fly over the valley. The only reason you're in the valley is your faith is weak. If you were a good Christian or a better Christian, if you had real faith, you'd never be in the valley. The valley is for people with weak faith. That's a lie. But that's one of our tendencies in, in uh, that's where we go in our hearts. Focus on the valley, focus on me, my faith. Paul doesn't want us to focus on the valley. He wants us to tell the truth about the valley and name it. He doesn't want us to focus on ourselves. He wants us to focus on Jesus, the one who is with us, who has power over all evil in the valley. Look at that's exactly what he does in verse 13. And and through the through, through the rest of this chapter, he goes, We ought always to give thanks to you, to uh, thanks to God for you, brothers. What's he say right there? We don't use that word beloved. Some of you do. Most of us don't. We would say deeply loved. Deeply loved by the Lord. Um, He immediately, look, they're in the valley. He doesn't say to them, oh, we give thanks to you because we know how much you love God. You'll make it out of the valley. That's good news for you and it's good news for you or me. You know why? Because in the valley, my heart doesn't want to love God. You know what my heart asks in the valley? God, if you really love me, why would you put me here? Our confidence is not in our love for God. 
Our confidence is in God's love for us. He really loves me as his son. He sees me in the valley. He's with me in the valley. He loves me. I love you. But he doesn't stop there. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Uh, You're deeply loved. But why else? Because what? God chose you as the first fruits. To be what? What did he choose you for? To be saved. In the valley, what does my heart say? I'm going to die here. I'm done. There's no way I come out of this valley. This is my life. This is my lot. I live here. I will die here. I stopped walking through the valley of the shadow of death a long time ago. I am crawling through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm so broken, I quit crawling and I'm just lying here. And Paul reminds us, God didn't just choose you to be a son or a daughter. And when he chooses, he plays for keeps. God chose you to be saved. He's going to walk you through the valley and bring you out on the other side. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, meaning meaning God the Holy Spirit is all over you. Sanctification means set apart. You, You have been set apart. The Spirit sees you and he is with you and the Spirit has one mission, to bring you to the Father, to bring you to the Son. Uh, The Spirit is bringing you through the valley. He is God with us. Verse 14, to this he, here's one more very important piece, to this he called you through our gospel. Why did he call you? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to obtain the glory of Jesus is to be with Jesus where he is, with the Father, where he is, fully restored, fully forgiven, faithfully loved, forever kept, all the way home on the other side of the valley. Guys, this is incredible news for us. Because how often in the valley do I stop loving God? All the time. How often in the valley do I stop choosing God? How often in the valley do I lose my way and lose sight of God the Father? All the time. I get lost in the valley. But based on these three encouragements, am I ever actually lost in the valley? Am I ever unseen in the valley? Am I ever alone in the valley? No. God loves me. God chose me. And God has called me. And he is, called, he, is, he is bringing me all the way home. We need to wrap this up. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our... Le-. So here's his final encouragement. So then, brothers, what? You don't have to run out of the valley. You're okay. Stand, you're okay. You can stand firm in the valley. Why? Verse 16, now because our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loves us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, he will comfort our hearts and he will establish them in what? Every good work and every good word. Let's just think about that for a moment as we close. I have been established, that is, I've been set on safe ground because of the good word and the good works of Jesus. And so I can stand firm in the valley because I I know he loves me, he's chosen me, and he's called me and he's bringing me all the way home. 
But he doesn't want me just to be established in good wor- his good words and his good works. Being established in Jesus, good words and good works leads us to be a family who is established in good words and good works as we walk through the valley. So let me just show you this contrast. The beginning of this chapter opens up with anxiety. With anxiety, we turn inward. With fear, we turn inward. And our focus is on surviving in the valley. And we begin to think of the valley as our home. We live here. And if the valley is our home and we're focused on surviving, the only thing we can do is we become preppers. We, be, we become preppers. We have to survive. The gospel, on the other hand, says the valley is not my home. We are not preppers. We are pilgrims and we are passing through. So then the options are with fear, with the valley as my home, with a, with a, uh, we, we become these Christian preppers and it's all about the guns and the groceries. We just have to survive because we have no idea what's going to happen. And the gospel comes in with a clear and better word. It says, I'm with you in the valley. I love you. I see you. I'm bringing you all the way home. And that gives our hearts a freedom to move from survival to serving other people in the valley. So rather than guns and groceries, we are giving good words and good works to others who are in the valley with us. Good words and good works. Guys, God the Father has adopted you into a family that is walking through the valley together. You are not alone. And then I just want to affirm you as a family, I see you day in and day out giving good words and good works to others who are in the valley. We walk together We are kept together by God the Father, and we will go home together through his preserving work. The team's going to come and lead us in response, and as they come, let's consider that question again. What evil around me, what evil toward me, what evil within me? Let's confess our anxiety, and receive together God's invitation to move towards his comfort. Father, as we get ready to sing, we just want to confess that together as a family, we are in the valley, we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and we do fear evil. Father, I pray that, that you in my own heart and in the hearts of my brothers and sisters in here would replace anxiety over evil with anticipation of the one, Jesus, who has power over all evil and will undo what that evil has done when he returns. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.